Let me start by saying this isn't the conversation I wanted to have with you. When I was assigned Mark 12, I got really excited because the widow's might is at the end of this chapter, right? And I'm your church treasurer. How much fun would it be for the church treasurer to do a message about giving, right? And I had this pun locked and loaded. I was ready to go to talk about the widow's might and the strength of our sacrifice. Might, might. We get it. You get it. And it was going to be so good, but the Holy Spirit had other plans. So today we're not going to talk about giving so much as we're going to talk about loving. And I don't have any fun stories for you this morning to start us off because I've already told you all of my stories. They're in the Advent devotionals, and quite frankly, if anything else cool happens to us, then I need to save it for the next book. So we'll just (laughs) move right along. Okay, so let's set the stage a little bit here. We're going to be in Mark 12. If you want to start turning, I'm just going to kind of catch us all up together. We've already finished the triumphal entry as we're kind of on our way to Easter. This is Tuesday of Holy Week, if you're counting, and Jesus is in the temple today. And what Jesus is doing in the temple is interacting with a whole bunch of the elite groups of the day, right? So he's seeing the the Pharisees, he's seeing the Herodians, he sees the Sadducees, and he sees the scribes. And all of these people, seems like every time they interact with Jesus, are really setting out to discredit him in some way. And if you're anything like me, and I kind of hope that you aren't because this is kind of embarrassing. If you're anything like me, you kind of lump these people all together in your head. It doesn't matter what the the name is. In your head, it just is a person who doesn't like Jesus. And then you just kind of move on with your life. But because I learned some things, I want to share them with you. And if you're a better biblical scholar than me, just pretend to learn something. Um, The Pharisees. So the Pharisees were looking for the right kind of Messiah, right? They had combed through the Old Testament. They'd been through all of the prophecies, and they had a checklist for who the Messiah was going to be, and Jesus did not measure up. So every time they asked a question, what they were trying to do is make sure that they could prove that Jesus was not Messiah. They teamed up in this chapter in particular with the Herodians who were in charge in Jerusalem. They were the Roman rule of the day. And what they did when they asked a question was to make sure that Jesus wasn't going to cause some sort of uprising that resulted in them losing power. The Sadducees were a splinter group. They had some very specific ideas about how things worked, and they really cared about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so anything that the Pharisees had to do with the oral law or the customs or anything like that, their job, the, the Sadducees, when they asked Jesus a question, what they wanted to do was gain some ammunition in their kind of West Side Story fight with the Pharisees. The scribes were the experts in the law. And what they wanted to do anytime they asked Jesus a question was make sure that he was not going to upend this law that was so important to them. Okay. We got all of that. Oh, and the Pharisees and the scribes make up the Sanhedrin that Travis talked about last week. That's all the people. Um, We're going to be just in verses 28 to 31 today in Mark 12. So if you want to turn with me, I'll start reading there. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment, commandment greater than these. Here are some things I want to point out in this message. The first thing that struck me is that we typically see Jesus interact with groups of people when they're asking him questions. And this this scribe didn't come with a posse, right? He didn't come 
to test Jesus. He came to ask an honest question. I know we see this, this, this same conversation with Jesus in other, in other books, in Matthew and in Luke, both we talk about these commandments, and it specifically says an expert in the law came to test Jesus. But in this particular account, in this particular chapter, this guy came by himself. And what we see of Jesus in other places in scripture is that he discerns the motive of a person's heart and he meets them there. And I think that's what he did for this scribe because he honored him with something we see almost nowhere else in that Jesus actually answered the question. He didn't respond with another question. He didn't respond with a parable. He responded with an actual answer. So what did he say? The first thing that Jesus says in response is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. This would have been really familiar to the scribe. It would have hit right home with him. Our text says that the scribe asked Jesus a question because he had watched how Jesus responded to the others. And he felt comfortable asking him this question. This response would have given further validation for why he was in the right place to ask this question. The Shema is something that even today is important in the Jewish faith. It's a reference to a core text in Deuteronomy that the Jews still carry with them even now. Everyone agrees that even if Jesus isn't Messiah, God is God. He's the only one, even if they get it twisted every now and again. I'm so glad we've got that figured out. The second part of the Shema is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus adds mind here. The Hebrews around Moses in Deuteronomy when he was saying this didn't think that you had to add mind in order to encompass the totality of a person. But Jesus adds it, and a lot of biblical scholars think that he added it because he wanted to make sure that people knew that there was, there was a wisdom and an understanding also required in interacting with God, separate from and also in addition to heart, soul, and strength. Okay, so we've got the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now let's unpack love your neighbor as yourself a little bit. This concept is just as old. I know it seems to kind of come out of nowhere, but it isn't um, new at all. It's from everyone's favorite Old Testament book, Leviticus. We find this love your neighbor language first in Leviticus 19. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but put your finger in Mark 12 and turn to Leviticus with me for a moment. Leviticus 19. I'm just going to breeze right through the first 18 verses of this chapter. Don't worry. I know that sounds like a lot. I promise it doesn't. It'll be on the screen too, I think. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. Verse 9. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you catch how it starts out similarly to the Shema, the Lord is holy? This continues to be a foundational truth, whether we see it in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or any of these accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all throughout Scripture. This is the foundational truth. God is God. God is first. The Lord our God is one. And this grounding statement in Leviticus is really just a beginning of a retelling of the Ten Commandments. You can see them all there. No other gods before me. Sabbath, honoring your father and mother. Moses adds an interesting piece here about the shelf life of your sacrifices and offerings. And I'm not sure why he did that, if he was trying to spice things up a bit or if they were having some kind of consistent food poisoning problem. Um, I will admit I did not explore the spiritual significance of the offerings piece. But then in verse 9, we see a shift, right? The rest of the commandments, all those that have to do with how we interact with people, including you know, not killing them or taking their stuff. It goes on to say the other ways we should engage with the people around us, that we should save some of what we have to give to people who don't have enough, that we should treat everyone the same, regardless of their status in the community, that we should tell the truth about people and refrain from holding grudges and judgments, and there it is, love our neighbor as ourselves. What I love about each of these statements in these 18 verses is that regardless of whether they're talking about the commandments that have to do with how we interact with God or if they're the commandments about how we interact with each other, they end with, I am the Lord. Seven times in this passage, he says, I am the Lord. I love that these statements are grounded in God, not just because it's good for us to remember that all of this was his idea, but also because it shows me after each commandment, he's there to help me get it right every single time. He's there for all of them. And this isn't the only time we see these commandments. It's not the only time that we see even love your neighbor as yourself in Scripture. It's all over the place, like to the point that I stopped counting trying to find it. It's all over the place. And why do you think they keep showing up all over the place? It, it's not by accident. God doesn't do accidents. When something's repeated in Scripture, it's because we're supposed to pay attention. And for Jesus to unify these commands, this piece from Deuteronomy and this piece from Leviticus here, that's something to pay attention to as well, because it's new. Jesus, the perfect son of God, who understood perfect love in ways we never will, said that loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves are equally important. 
Jesus elevated love your neighbor to carry the same weight as the Shema when he said that there is no greater commandment than these. Do you remember that part from verse 31? There's no greater commandment than these. So we have to consider them together. And I've been thinking about these commandments like jumping jacks. What could that possibly mean biblically? Well, what is a jumping jack? No, I'm really asking. What is a jumping jack? Can someone describe a jumping jack to me? Cat's got it. Show me, cat. There you go. That's right. Um, it's clapping your hands over your head and jumping in and out with your feet, right? And you have to do them both or it doesn't count as a jumping jack. What if, for the sake of this illustration, and all of them, like you tell me, break down at some point, right? Um, what if my clapping hands represents my relationship with God? If I'm just focused on my relationship with God, then I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. And if my jumping feet, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm really afraid this pack's going to fall out. Um, I should have worn pants with pockets. If, if I'm jumping in and out and that represents me loving my neighbor as myself, it means I'm not loving my God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? If we think about these commandments like jumping jacks, it means that any singular focus I have results in me not actually accomplishing what I set out to do. Unless I do both, I'm not doing what I was commanded. It's not actually obeying the commands unless you do both. We're not fully completing the work that has been set for us unless we do both. So how do we do that? How do we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves? We do so through posture and practice. And I would just like to take this opportunity to thank God for a message with alliteration, which is my love language. When I say posture, I'm talking about posture as the display of an attitude. So how my almost teenager displays a particular attitude when it's time for bed. We develop postures and attitudes through time and attention to particular things. We have postures for the purposes of this discussion towards ourselves, towards others, and towards God. I want to start with our posture towards ourselves. When our posture toward ourselves is misaligned, we don't see ourselves for who we are. We often see ourselves as unworthy, busted, used up, too broken. We don't see any way we can ever measure up. But listen, measuring up isn't anything we've ever had to worry about. We're already bought and paid for. And it doesn't matter our anxiety, our depression, our brokenness. While we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's nothing we have to do. If, if Ryan Collins was the only human on this planet, he would be worth saving. You're his kid too. You're God's kid too. Accepted, worthy, perfectly loved, and fully forgiven. Ooh, that was unexpected. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 says it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I'll admit, I don't rest in these promises perfectly, and that's okay. Anytime I disqualify myself 
or overqualify myself, as it were. I like to be right a lot. He'll keep reminding me that I'm his and he's in charge. And he'll remind you too. And maybe one day we'll have a proper posture toward ourselves and we'll live like we believe that's true. Now, posture towards others. This one's tricky to evaluate because so often our hearts are in the right place and it's too late before we realize that our actions didn't have our intended impact. When our posture towards others is misaligned, we don't see them for who they are. We don't see others for who they are. We assume and we judge and we somehow miss that if God loves us in our brokenness, he loves them too. And before we go any further, I want to point out that this posture towards others isn't more important than the other two, but it is the one that people see. And the reality we have to face is that the way that we behave, the way we treat others creates a reputation for the church and by extension, a reputation for Jesus. And I know Jesus doesn't need our help with building his reputation, but for people who don't know him, they draw conclusions about who Jesus is and what he stands for based on our behavior. So that's a pretty heavy thing for us to carry. A proper posture towards others, truly loving your neighbor as yourself through thoughts and actions means you see people, just people. And you think about people and you behave towards people as if each and every one of them is that child that God loves. This isn't me asking us to hate the sin and love the sinner. I hear that a lot. Because that suggests that we get to pass judgment on a person's sin before we offer them the love of Jesus. Hate the sin, love the sinner suggests that we decide on someone's worthiness for the kingdom before we give them the keys to get in. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we live in a hurting world. We live in a dying world, a broken world. And we have the truth. We have the life. We have the living water. We have what the world needs and we're spending so much time talking about how dark a person's darkness is that we're forgetting we have the light. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 addresses this idea of light and darkness and loving our brothers well. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And before you say, we're supposed to hold each other accountable for sin, that, that's true, that's biblical. But I'll just ask you to consider when you're holding someone else accountable for sin, is that about you being right or about them being righteous? Because that's what I see right now. I see a church that's turned in on itself, a church that finds comfort in familiarity and sameness. I see a church that's interested in an established set of rules for righteousness, sometimes inappropriately developed. We seem to care so much more about the boxes people check and whether they're the right ones than about the state of people's hearts and where they'll spend eternity. What if instead, church was a place where when they come here, people know that they're welcome because we demonstrate for them that we believe God loves them just as much as he loves us, that we believe that their sin, whatever it is, isn't any worse than our own, period. What if this is a place where we'll, we're willing to set aside preferences, to set aside opinions, and focus on actual truth? 
a place where we engage with our neighbors regardless of what they look like, where they came from, how they worship, who they voted for, whether they're gay or they're pro-choice or if they support Black Lives Matter. Not if it matters. What if we just hold our hands and our hearts open because what if, what if we're wrong? What if all the rules that we ask people to follow are really more human than they are holy? Because the key to a healthy posture towards someone else is an agreement. It's humility. It's the humility that matters, the humility to stand beside someone else, shoulder to shoulder with someone you disagree with, side by side with someone who thinks differently than you, arm in arm with someone you consider a sinner. That's how the kingdom's different. And that's what the world needs to see. A church that is a place where nothing matters but growing to be more like Jesus and making sure that everybody has a shot and knowing and loving Jesus too. This will not be easy work. It will be uncomfortable, and it will be awkward. It will require us to sit with someone and listen, truly listen to their story without passing judgment, without offering correction, without trying to fix the situation, without getting defensive. That's the one that's hard for me. And without quoting a bunch of Bible verses. It will mean that we just have to sit there and confront the ways in which we, the church, maybe not us personally, but the church, has failed some people and hasn't stepped up to help when our neighbor needed us. This will inconvenience us, and it might even distance us from people who are currently our church friends. And hear me, I don't say this from a place of condemnation. It's really a place of conviction. I arrived at this idea on Friday afternoon. This is why I'm in this part of Mark 12. Because we didn't need something clever. We needed actual truth. I needed actual truth. Because I've hardened my heart in the last several years. I really like being around people who think like me, who do things the way I do, because it makes me feel good and right and justified, righteous even. So again, not from a place of condemnation, but a place of conviction. And if this is hard for you, like it is for me, I'd ask you to examine your posture towards God because there's a direct correlation between our posture towards God and our posture towards ourselves and others. And when we get this one right, odds are higher that we're headed towards actually living out those commandments because this posture dictates everything else. Plain and simple, when our posture towards God is misaligned, we don't see him for who he is. God is God. He's the one. It's that first part of the Shema, right? And I think a lot of us think we're doing well with this part, at least compared to the other two. But are our lives actually evidence of that? Let me ask you a couple of questions. Again, conviction, not condemnation. When you had to make a decision about a job, who did you go to first? When you and your spouse were having a hard time communicating, where did you turn? When you were in that weirdness with your friend where you didn't know if you were in a fight or not, who did you ask? Who did you talk to about it? When you were worried about that medical issue, did you consult Dr. Google or the great physician? C. 
See, when life hands us something hard or complicated, how we respond to it is a good indicator of our posture toward God. Whether we look to him first or last or not at all is pretty telling. It really does seem simple, doesn't it? It's a simple concept. Put God first because he's God. Okay, I got it. But man, it is not easy. But it really is the most important thing. When we have an attitude that perfectly reflects who God says he is, everything else is better. Now, I'm not saying everything is better in the way that we would define better. I would define better as the ability to teleport, and I think Ryan would too. If I could just snap my fingers and be at Disney, that would be better. But that's not how this works. Our circumstances don't change just because we get this part right, just because our attitudes demonstrate that God is who he says he is. But it can change our mindset if we let it. We can move from a place of thinking in if-then kinds of terms to a place of yes-and kinds of terms. This perspective can change everything. If-then says something like, if God loves me fiercely, then bad things won't happen to me. If God loves me, then my kids will always be safe and they'll make good choices. If God loves me, then I'll get this job. If God loves me, then my marriage will never be in trouble. We put a lot of weight in this if basket. And that is not going back to the event. That one's actually really important. Yes and says something like this. Yes, things are bad right now. Like truly terrible, really awful, 10 out of 10, do not recommend bad. And God loves me fiercely. We can hold the good and the bad at the same time. And when our posture towards God is aligned with his heart for us and for our lives, it becomes that much more possible to really live like we believe it. And it takes a lifetime of practice. Our second P, again, thank you for alliteration. This isn't something we do just once. It's something we have to do every single day. And if it's a Saturday and you're in Target and it's near Christmas time and the line's all the way to the groceries, you may have to practice multiple times an hour. I've been thinking about this practicing posture quite literally. So I want you to imagine I'm sitting at my desk. It's a, a lush teal cat. You're going to like this. It's a deep teal velvet chair in my office. Um, so I know when I'm sitting at this desk, there's a certain way I need to sit in this chair I have to press my back all the way to the backrest. I have to have my feet flat on the floor. I have to have my monitor at a certain height. I know how embarrassingly large I need the font to be to see it. And yet I find myself needing to readjust all day long, many times a day. I'll have this like hot lava feeling right here in the back of my neck, and that tells me that I'm in slouching and I need to sit up straighter. Or I'll start to get a little bit of a headache, and that'll tell me that I need to zoom in a little bit more. I could see each of these little twinges as annoyance, and they are, but these little aches are reminders. They're opportunities for me to realign, to get my posture right so that I can do my work well. This will happen when you practice your posture with God, with yourself, with others. There will be those sorenesses, those twinges, those aches. Don't ignore them, though. Because, I mean, if I sat there in that chair all day long and let that hot lava feeling just sit there, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread, right? And then my whole back is, it's a whole thing. We can't ignore those aches and twinges. 
because they are evidence of how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. They are how he aligns us with himself. Can I encourage you this morning? You're going to get this wrong a lot. That's not really an encouragement, I know. But the encouragement is when you get this wrong a lot, and you will, that's okay. God wants you to keep trying. God knows that we're going to get it wrong a lot. He's been at this human thing for kind of a long time now. Remember what Paul says about God in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that his grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Let me reiterate. God's grace is sufficient to cover all of those realignments, those recalibrations, those reorientations. He's got it. I mean, think about jumping jacks again for a second. I know um, none of you were born just knowing how to do a jumping jack, right? Have you ever seen somebody try to do one that doesn't know how? I would encourage you to ask one of the kids from children's ministry, like age six or younger, you're laughing because you get it. Ask Eva. Okay, Eva's a, Eva volunteers as tribute. Um, ask someone who doesn't know how to do jumping jacks to do it. Because they don't, it's hilarious. They don't know how. Why do they not know how? Because they need to practice. They need to practice. We're going to have so many chances to practice aligning our postures towards him, towards ourselves, towards others. And my hope is that we don't waste them. Because otherwise we're going to grow up and not know how to do jumping jacks, right? My hope is that we actually let them transform the way we behave. Because when we do, we're living out those commandments of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving our neighbors as ourselves. And as you hear this this morning, maybe this hits home for you. Maybe you're someone who thinks, I have some shifts to make in my posture. Maybe you want to hear Jesus say to you what he says to this scribe at the end of this little section of, of Mark. You are not far from the kingdom. But this kind of transformation requires some evaluation and reflection. I believe the spiritual disciplines of silence and stillness are our best resources for this kind of change. That's unfortunate too, isn't it? Because how often do we have silence and stillness? I found myself the other day thinking, when is the last time I drove in this car without listening to a book or a radio station? We're never alone. We're never quiet. And I wonder if sometimes that's why we're not hearing from God. We don't give him space to speak. So silence and stillness require us to stop moving, to stop serving and helping to sit down for a minute, to stop that never-ending list of things we need to do, to stop the list of self-loathing, to slow down and spend time in his presence, give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit speaking to us. When we sit in silence and stillness, we relinquish control of our hearts and our minds. We deny the distractions of the day and we focus our souls with all our strength on what God has to say to us. And if you've ever been in group prayer with me, you know how much I love an awkward silence. So we're going to practice today. We're going to get in a quick practice session. So set aside your Bible, your phone, your pen, your notebook, your baby, whatever you're holding. Just put it aside. (laughs) Take a couple of deep breaths. Settle your body. If it's not too weird for you, hold out your hands. I mean, you can cup your hands too if it's not. I mean, the Holy Spirit will speak to you no matter how Pentecostal you're feeling today. 
I like to do this because it is a physical reminder of me relinquishing control. Hold out your hands to receive what the Holy Spirit wants to communicate with you. Close your eyes and bow with me. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, that is our prayer. Speak to us in this stillness and silence. What's he telling you? What grievous ways is he uncovering in your heart? What's he saying about your posture towards him? What about your posture towards yourself? your posture towards others? In what area is he asking you to practice more towards living out these commandments? What aches or twinges are bubbling up for you? Where do you need to devote some more practice time? every head bowed and eyes still closed, my hunch is that something in here came up for you. I asked you a question and you felt your breath catch in your chest. You felt a check in your spirit. Or maybe there was one question that made you roll your eyes a little bit. Don't disregard those things, friends. They're some of the ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to us in the stillness. God, we come to you today in this silence and stillness. We believe that you are one. We believe that you are God and there is no other. Help us to live our lives, Father, in such a way that exhibits that belief. We confess that while we want to love you with our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength, we often fall short. And since, God, help is a fully formed prayer, that's all we ask, God. Help. We confess, too, Lord, that we very often do not love our neighbors or ourselves well. We require other people to live up to standards that don't reflect that unconditional and devoted love that you've demonstrated through the sacrifice of your son. God, thank you, not only for that sacrifice, but for the mercies you show us every day. 
all the chances you give us to move closer to you, to become more like Jesus. We're more grateful than we could ever express. And thank you, we'll never be enough. But it's what we have, God. In your name, Jesus. And we're going to sit for another couple of seconds in silence as the worship team comes. And allow the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to us. God, thank you that you meet us even in a crowded room with a whole bunch of people. It's just you and me, God. It's just you and Ryan. It's just you and Travis. It's just you and Kristen. Because you're big enough to do the big God things that you do, but you're also small enough to be right with us. And we thank you, God, for all of the practice time that you give us today and moving forward. God, let this week be our week of transformation, the week that we start to live out in a posture towards you, ourselves, and others, that we actually believe it is worth it to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it is worth it to love your neighbors yourself. In your name we pray. Amen.